This program is a paid commercial announcement from Jacob Media Partners and does not reflect the views of WPHT or its management. Your radio doctor does not recommend or endorse any specific tests, physicians, products, procedures, opinions, or other information that may be mentioned on your radio doctor. Always consult your own physician. Today's program has been pre-recorded. Overcoming great challenges like COVID-19 requires great cooperation. This is Dan Hilferty, CEO of Independence Blue Cross. Most of us never imagined we'd be facing an outbreak of this magnitude. But in the face of this challenge, hospitals, public officials, and business leaders have come together. Through effective cooperation, these leaders are taking steps to keep us safe. Slowing the rate of infection from the virus will help hospitals care for those who need attention most. Remember, stay home. Leave only for essential needs. Stay informed from sources like the CDC or Department of Health. Take a break from watching the news. Stay well, exercise, and practice self-care to make sure you're physically and mentally fit. In our great region, we have a tradition of caring for each other and cooperating to get things done. We'll do it again now. For more, visit ibx.com slash COVID-19. Together, we will beat COVID-19. Talk Radio 1210, WPHT, WPHT, HD, WOGL, HD3, Philadelphia. Radio.com station. From the Malamud and Associates Law Studios, it's time for the Delaware Valley's first radio doctor. On call every Sunday morning at 10. This is your radio doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie. Presented exclusively by Independence Blue Cross. That is a very, very robust, vigorous, achu sneeze. That's what that is. And that's not what we're talking about. Your health determines your life, your longevity, and your happiness. Let your radio doctor lead the way with your medical education. Your radio doctor, Dr. Marianne Ritchie. Good morning and welcome on this beautiful Sunday to your radio doctor. I'm your host, Dr. Marianne Ritchie. Today from Rothman Orthopedic Institute, we'll hear from one of the leading hip and knee surgeons in Philadelphia about joint replacements, the importance of prehab as well as rehab, and we'll also commemorate Flag Day with a beautiful story of one of our nation's sons, a retired Army captain who still serves. So let's begin. Our first guest is Dr. Matt Austin, Division Chief of Joint Replacement Services at Rothman Orthopedic Institute and Professor of Orthopedics. Welcome, Dr. Austin. So good to have you. Thanks. It's great to be here this morning, Marianne. Wonderful. Now, hip and knee replacement surgery, they're performed to relieve pain, minimize disability, and in general, improve the overall quality of life. But you also consider the person's occupation, any other medical problems, because we want to establish realistic goals. So I'm your patient. Dr. Austin, I've had this hip or knee pain. I've had this pain for years. How do I know it's time for surgery? Well, Marianne, you know, surgery obviously is the end point for for many people who have hip and knee arthritis. Uh, but it, it, it's not the only endpoint. And so there are about a million hip and knee replacements done in this country every year. But as you know, there are tens of millions of people who suffer from arthritis. And arthritis is wearing away of the cartilage, and eventually it can lead to a very painful condition. So what we try to do with patients is we try to figure out how long they've had pain, how much it affects their quality of life, And for many patients, quality of life is their ability to walk or play with grandkids or golf. For other patients, it's uh, more high-end activities like skiing or or hiking uh, tall mountains. 
Uh, we all like to do different things. And so we want to find out how bad the hip or knee is and what it's really stopping the patient from doing. Then once we figure that out, we figure out what type of treatment have they had. Have they tried medications? Have they tried injections uh, or other conservative modalities? And ultimately, if they fail those and their quality of life is not what they want it to be, then sometimes surgery is the appropriate answer for those patients. Sure. So it's there's a whole algorithm and you try the non-operative options first, which makes perfect sense. Are there any reasons that would be an absolute no or what we call contraindications? I'm sure there are. There's a list of those as well. Sure. You know, it, it seems very simple, but sometimes we have patients come in for a second opinion. They've been told that they need joint replacement surgery. And when you sort of dig down into the opinion a little more, you find out that maybe the doctor just sort of looked at the x-rays and saw that they had very bad arthritis, but they never really talked to the patient. And they figured out, you know, does, does the patient have pain that warrants a replacement? So that's number one. You know, just because you have arthritis doesn't mean you need a joint replacement. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, that's certainly a contraindication. But in terms of patients whose pain warrants surgery, Patients who are very sick, they have a lot of medical problems where surgery may indeed tip them over the edge into a worse medical state. Patients who have had, say, multiple heart, atta- heart attacks and have very poor uh, heart function may not be able to withstand the rigors of surgery. Uh, patients who have active infections. So some patients haven't been to the dentist in a while, and they find out through the course of being worked up for surgery that they have an infection in their mouth that needs to be treated first. That would be a patient that we would want to have their dental problem treated first appropriately. And when that was cleared, we would then uh, proceed with, uh, with surgery. So those are just a few examples of when maybe we should push surgery off a bit to optimize the patient and get them ready to have a successful outcome and reduce the risk of having a, a problem after surgery. Right. So they have, people have to understand that they have to be really um, in the best uh, health possible, especially if they have a condition like diabetes. If that's out of control, it's not just that their sugar is going to fluctuate. It's that that fluctuating sugar increases their risk for infection uh, during surgery, post-surgery, and increase their risk for blood clots, which can be life-threatening. So you make a very good point, and I'm sure that you put them through a really stringent preoperative uh, exam. So if a patient needs hip and knee surgery, assuming on the same side, uh, which would you do first? Uh, generally, we, we, we try to do the joint that really is affecting the patient's quality of life the most. But say they're equivalent. What we would recommend is you get a, your hip replaced first. Sometimes, because you get a little bit of, uh, you get a little bit of uh, double dipping in a way, where if you take care of the hip, uh, sometimes the hip, is actually the cause of the knee pain because it can radiate down. And uh, we, we try to recommend the hip first. Uh, it's a little bit easier of a recovery as an added bonus. But sometimes you, you, you kill the, the proverbial bird with one stone, the two birds with one stone, by taking care of the hip problem first, and you may avoid uh, having subsequent knee surgery. Sure. And it's remarkable how quickly you have people back up on their feet. I mean, we talked the other day, somebody has surgery in the morning, don't you have them at least sitting up and, and trying to walk uh, later in the afternoon or early evening? Yeah, you know, it's really interesting. In the past, we had patients in bed for, you know, multiple uh, weeks after surgery, and we, we would only get them up uh, when they were about two, three weeks out from surgery. And 
you know, they, they were a lot of problems with that. Now, nowadays, we do the surgery. The patient's up and moving within about, you know, t- probably two hours after their surgery. And sometimes we even send people home the same day uh, if they've passed all the physical therapy milestones, their pain is well controlled, and they're ready to go home. It's the 21st century. It's incredible. And and people have to understand that we are not being mean. It decreases their risk for pneumonia because they're not lying in bed. It decreases the risk for blood clots in their legs and all sorts of infections. And, and they'll get their strength back more quickly. So I know uh, also, Matt, that for many years, surgeons have been doing both knees at one surgery. Well, it's two surgeries in one visit, however you like to say it. But I know more in more recent years, Sometimes you'll do both hip replacements at the same time. Why would you choose to do both? Um, and I'm sure there are medical issues that would tell you not to do both. Sure. In, in general, when you get two operations uh, at the same time, there's, there's more of an effect on the body. So when you do two operations at the same time, it does increase the risk of surgery. So we tend to do these uh, operations in younger and uh, healthier patients. Uh, why would you do both at the same time? The simple reason is it's a quicker recovery. You only have to recover from one operation, one surgical setting. You, you go through rehab one time. So that's the major advantage of having both of them done at the same time. But we really believe that it should be done selectively, and you have to speak with your surgeon to make sure you're an appropriate candidate to get both hips or both knees done at the same time. Sure. Any specific reasons that you would definitely not do that? Yes, I, I, I wouldn't do it in a patient who uh, is, is older, physiologically older. Uh, we don't necessarily have a number. I would also not do it in a patient who has severe cardiac or heart disease or lung disease uh, because uh, these patients already have an elevated risk, and it, it uh, is not wise to increase the risk even more by performing uh, a longer surgery uh, when you when consider doing both at the same time. Right. And we have about a minute left, Matt. Um, what's the typical lifespan of a replaced hip? I know if I were in my 40s, I might, in the old days, you'd say, well, tough it out for another five or six years so it will last longer. You don't want to have to go through replacement. But that's really changed. Yes, it really has. Uh, and that is because the type of bearing material we use, that is the, the plastic that uh, the ball rubs against, has been uh, improved dramatically. And since 2000, the wear rates of hip replacements are very, very low. So it's like having a tire that doesn't really wear very quickly. And it is possible even a patient at, say, 50 years old, they could get the replacement at 50 and not need another one. Now, we don't have the data to support 30, 40 years, but certainly they are lasting a lot longer than they used to prior to the year 2000. And it might be a little different, though, with a knee if the motion is different, maybe a different shearing force. You're absolutely right. The wear pattern is different with a knee. We would say that a knee has about a 1% chance of failing every year. So if you're a glass half full kind of person, which I know you are, Marianne, in uh-huh. 20 years, 80% of people will still have their knee that was put in uh, 20 years prior. So wow. that's pretty good. Not probably as good as hips, but pretty good. It's, it's incredible, really. Well, and we're going to talk a little bit more with Dr. Matt Austin from Rothman Orthopedic Institute when we come back from the break. Thanks, Matt. Thanks for listening to Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie, exclusively presented by Independence Blue Cross. If you have a question for the medical mailbag, just send a note to doctor at yourradiodoctor.com. 
we're here with Dr. Matt Austin, hip and knee surgeon from the Rothman Institute. So Matt, we were starting to talk about the technology and how it's improved with hip and knee surgery. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. So, you know, everyone gets focused on the technology, Marianne, but one of the things that's really improved the most that has allowed people to get up and moving within a couple hours of surgery, as we talked about before, is pain management. And it may seem like a small thing, but it's absolutely huge. One of the things that prevent people from getting surgery is the fear of pain, the fear of suffering after the surgery. And as, sur- as a surgeon, I can admit that You know, a long time ago, 10, 15 years ago, we didn't pay as much attention to pain as we do now, and that that wasn't right. Now we pay a lot of attention to managing people's pain. We try not to use opioid medications or reduce the amount of opioids, and there are a number of medications that work really, really well to control pain that aren't addictive, like the opioid or narcotic medications. And as you know, we have an opioid epidemic, so we're really trying Uh, to reduce the amount of opioids. But these pain management protocols allow people to get up and moving a lot quicker, a lot more comfortably, and even get back to work a lot earlier uh, without the side effects that we've uh, seen from, you know, morphine and medications like that. Yes. Well, I think, too, as a GI doctor, I always think of people postoperatively being constipated, which is just another layer of nasty after you're going through pain and, and recuperating. And um, that's certainly a side effect of narcotics. But you can use IV Tylenol, am I right? And isn't there a, uh, an NSAID or a non-steroidal that you can apply to the joint during surgery that takes some of the pain away? Well, actually, we, we use plain old-fashioned uh, just Tylenol that you would mm-hmm. take uh, over the counter. We use oh, that wow. in combination with, uh, with a muscle relaxant. We, okay. also use it in, uh, we also use, as you, as you stated, an anti-inflammatory. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is partially uh, protective of the GI system. I know I should point that out, given the fact <laughs> that you're a uh, GI doc. You get an um, extra gold star, Matt. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And we actually also use a nerve-stabilizing medication. And these four medications work really, really well to reduce the pain and reduce narcotic medications. And as you know, at Rothman, we do a lot of research, and we've actually published on this pain management protocol. We've won awards uh, for Uh, the treatment of pain after surgery. And I I think it's one of the biggest advances. Forget technology, forget all the other stuff. Taking care of people's pain postoperatively is one of the most important and best advances we've had over the last 10 years. No, you make a very good point, and that's very reassuring to people. Now, hopefully we're on our way out of the pandemic, but I know COVID led to, just like in GI, delaying elective procedures and so many of your patients were at home and would you guess that the the um, pandemic had people less active so they were in less pain or maybe they might develop um, what we call contractures or I mean you know that but for our listeners um, tightness because they're not as active what would you say you're expecting to see as patients come back for their surgeries and their office visits yeah, that's a great point. So what we uh, what we were expecting to see um, during the pandemic was that people's pain would de- diminish because they were doing less, as you point out. But as we started to uh, started to perform elective surgery, we were contacting patients who had their surgery canceled because of the pandemic, and uh, the universal feeling was their pain had not improved; that they were still very, very much willing and and wanting to undergo the surgery. 
and we're, we're very happy that we were starting to operate again. So what we expected was that the patients would be better. What we actually found out is they weren't any better or they were worse because uh, it had been a longer period of time. So, uh, you know, you, you think one thing and then you find something else out when you actually start talking to people. Oh, sure. And the other thing you cons- that concerns you, I'm sure, is while they're at home, if they're, you know, there's disuse atrophy or the muscles start to wither a little bit or, or shrink or become, they're, they're not as strong and they need that strength to transfer out of bed and start walking post-op. So that must be something that it's great that you're reaching out to the patients. How have you sort of told patients to stay in their best possible shape while they wait for their surgery? Well, so, you know, some of the patients have done exercises before uh, as part of their non-operative treatment. So we just sort of tell them to, to do their exercises that they've learned. Uh, some of them uh, are not comfortable doing that and they wanted some guidance. So we have web-based physical therapy where you don't have to actually go in uh, to see the therapist. And some patients were comfortable coming in and doing a little strengthening while some of the offices were, were open. Um, and just to point out to the patients out there, on our website, rothmanortho.com, uh, there, there are exercises that you can uh, look at uh, that help you become familiar with the appropriate exercises. And there's national organizations like aahks.org, that's American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons, that will give you some good information on how to control your pain if your surgery has been delayed. Good. So hopefully that will keep uh, going back to that question people from developing contractures or, you know, a bent knee that's sort of stiff um, while they wait for their surgery. And Matt, the other thing I was that I was thinking about and what I would ask you today, um, a lot of patients will say, oh, I'm really in agony. I need an injection. And I know there's a general rule, no injections at least three months prior to surgery. Can you tell us about that a little bit? Sure. So um, when when we were going through the pandemic, we didn't know when we were going to come out of it. And some of the patients said, you know what, I just can't take the pain. Uh, I'd like an injection. And what many people don't know is that when you get an injection, whether it's the steroid injections or the so-called chicken shots, which are in medical terms, visco supplementation, but they're the chicken or gel type shots that we can give in addition to cortisone. What many patients don't know is that this may increase the risk of infection if they Mm -hmm. get a joint replacement within three months of that shot. So it's something that we find particularly important to tell patients, we can give you the injection. However, it will probably delay your surgery because of the potential for increased risk of infection. So I think it's important for your listeners to know that the shots aren't necessarily benign when it comes uh, around the time that you're having surgery. Right, especially if they happen to get it from their primary care doctor. Not that most primaries do that, but if they get it from a different source, remember to tell your surgeon. Just like when I'm, somebody comes back after five years and they sign up for screening colonoscopy, and I do a full history before we start, and they say, well, I had um, cataract surgery last week. No, we have to let whatever else is um, active in your system heal before we expose you, as you said earlier, to the risk of anesthesia and surgery and the rigors of, uh, of recuperating. I saw a patient one time who had a great hip and knee surgery in another state, actually, but decided he wanted to shave his, um, the area near his hip himself before he got there. Well, he didn't tell anybody. <laughs> and uh, I don't know whether they tracked some uh, skin bugs into his uh, hip, but it, it led to a, a 
infection later and they try to step back to him shaving the skin himself. So make sure to our listeners that you talk to your surgeon before you do anything or if you've had recent surgery or new medicine, we really have to keep you safe by knowing all those things. So then after surgery, Matt, um, will the rehab be any different for people who have been waiting than it was your usual protocol prior to COVID? So the, the rehab or the physical therapy afterwards, yeah. um, mm-hmm. it, it, it may differ for some patients. So at Rothman, generally, after surgery, we have the patients do a self-directed program, and we reassess them after a week or two. If they need formal physical therapy, then we provide them with a prescription. But for some patients, they may need to go to physical therapy a little bit earlier in the process. And so there are several options that are available. You can follow the self-directed program. You could do a tele-rehab where you log on and you see a therapist and they sort of treat you virtually. And then the last option, if the patient is comfortable and certainly if the patient needs it, is to do an in-office visit with the physical therapist for um, evaluation. So there are a number of options available. It's not one size fits all. Uh, Some people need the formal therapy with the therapist. Some can do it on their own and each individual situation should be uh, handled in conjunction with the the surgeon taking care of the patient. Sure. And I know if you do have uh, a knee replacement and you develop stiffness, once you hit the three month mark, tell us about that. Yeah, so it's, it's especially important that you communicate with your surgeon how you feel like you're doing after surgery. Sometimes patients have concerns, and they're normal concerns, and they're really doing fine, and they just need reassurance. But sometimes patients are experiencing problems after surgery, and they don't let the surgeons or the surgeon's team know, and then it's too late. So for the example you're talking about, if a patient is stiff, um, there is an operation. It's not really an operation. It's really... It's really what we call manipulation under anesthesia. It's usually done under spinal anesthetic, so you're numb from the waist down. You bend the knee up and you break up the scar tissue. A procedure like that can be incredibly helpful for patients, but it doesn't really work after three months. So that's where communication is key with the patients, whether it's telling the doctor whether or not you had an injection or whether or not you're having the difficulty after the surgery. Communication is key. Right. And that capsule around the knee is the enemy. It's just like I broke my elbow and I said, oh, it hurts so much. I don't care if I walk around Lake Napoleon for the rest of my life. But because I did rehab, I got my function back. Matt, thank you so much. You're so busy, especially since your doors are reopening. If someone wants to reach Rothman Orthopedic Institute, they would call what number? The number is 1-800-321-9999. 1-800-321-9999. Or they can just go on our website, rothmanortho.com. We have telehealth uh, as well as in-person visits, and the website has uh, some good information on it. Thank you so much, Matt. Take care, and next we hear from one of your wonderful physical therapists, so thanks again. Thank you so much, Marianne. Today's edition of Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie, presented exclusively by Independence Blue Cross, can be enjoyed on Radio.com. Listen to the show at your convenience. Go to Radio.com and in the search bar type in Your Radio Doctor. It's health education on demand. Welcome back. This is Your Radio Doctor, Dr. Marianne Ritchie, and our next guest is Kristen Callahan a super physical therapist at the Rothman Orthopedic Institute. Welcome, Kristen. Hi, how are you? Wonderful. So nice to have you. We just heard about hip and knee surgery, and now 
I was really fascinated when we talked the other day, you told me about the concept of prehab and how important that is. Can you tell Mm -hmm. us a little about that? Oh, I sure can. Um, I'm glad you're asking me about this, too, because it's so important. Um, Prehab does a lot of things for us. Sometimes it helps us identify, you know, things that might hinder post-operative rehab, or it helps prepare the patient a little bit better for their surgery and for what's to come afterwards. So there's so many benefits to prehab. And what would it include? Okay, so what we would do is a lot of times we would see um, patient in clinic. Um, in these times, sometimes we see them over a telehealth visit. But what it would include is a basic um, strength and range of motion uh, evaluation where we would find some deficits, anything that's tight or anything that um, we would find that would really be you know, helpful to strengthen before the patient has surgery. So a lot of times we'll show them how to just increase the range of motion of the knee or the hip before surgery so that they're not trying to start from ground zero while they've just had surgery. And then other things we can do is strengthen the stabilizers so that when you're walking with a walker or an assistive device, there's a lot of muscles that come into play. So sometimes we find that, you know, a patient might have really weak arms, so we'll actually give them arm and core exercises to help them walk with a walker. Um, Or, you know, they're having a total knee done, hip strength is so important to take pressure off the knee, so we'll actually give them a hip strengthening program. Makes sense. a lot of things for them. Yeah, and it makes sense when you mentioned about arms. If you're going to be using uh, an assist device or a Mm -hmm. cane or a walker, you haven't used those muscles before. You don't want them to tire out when you're trying to rehab after surgery. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. I know that uh, the Rothman Institute is opening their doors, getting ready to bring in all the patients who have been on delay because of the COVID stay-at-home orders. So when patients were awaiting hip and knee replacements at home, I would guess some of them became unconditioned but um, or less than conditioned. How were you helping people? They couldn't go to their usual neighborhood gym or pool to stay in shape while waiting, awaiting surgery. Um, what kind of suggestions do you have for them when they were at home? So number one, always tell them, stay as active as possible. Um, I know you're in a lot of pain, which is why you're having surgery. But keep doing the things that you normally do that you can tolerate. You know, if your laundry room is in the basement and you like to do the laundry the way you want to do it, go ahead and walk up and down those stairs if you can do so safely and keep the joint moving. Um, It's so important. It keeps the muscles loose, uh, keeps your functional strength up, and it helps you just stay active. It's also good because it prepares you for post-operative so that you can get used to moving around with that pain so you don't kind of forget what it feels like. Right. And I like some of the things you mentioned, stand and sit 20 times. That replaces maybe a squat exercise at the gym or use the bottom step and just go up and down 20 times. And then it keeps your calves and just really simple things that we don't think about. So then I know that um, I would guess preoperatively you instruct people how to properly use what you call assist devices, like a cane or walker. So often you see somebody Mm -hmm. walking down the street and I'm not an orthopedic surgeon. My husband is. And he'll say, man, why don't (laughs) don't you put that in your other hand? Or let me just raise, you see somebody leaning over a walker because it's not high enough and you just want to straighten them up. I'm sure you go after that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, So optimally we would get the patient in before surgery so we can show them how to fit their own locker if they have one at home or we can fit them with one right in the clinic and then what we do is we just teach them different ways to use the walker Um, we do have a four uh, step staircase it's a floating staircase which is actually what we also have down in our specialty hospital 
So we kind of get um, information gathering, too, things you don't think of. Do you have a railing the whole way up your stairs? Yes or no. Um, and then we can work with those specific situations because everyone's house is different. And um, also an important thing, a lot of patients think that they can just go up on their high knees, um, which is sometimes easier but the problem is when you get to the top of the steps, it's really hard to get up off the floor. So oh. we like to kind of teach them multiple ways to get up the steps True. that are safe and appropriate. So mm-hmm. It's, mm-hmm. it's so helpful. And then if you can practice several times, you don't have to have that fear coming home. It's one last thing you have to worry about. Is my surgery going to go okay? How am I getting in my house? Well, you already know. So it's, it's definitely a relief for patients as well if they can get in beforehand and have that practice. Plus, as you say, if they get home and you want them to practice, make sure that that walker does fit through the door into their bathroom Mm -hmm. or that once they make their meal. Right. Are they close enough to a table to carry their meal over? So so what is the perfect point? Yeah. So if you want to educate people, I know that you probably have a website filled with materials uh, with videos and that sort of thing. Can you tell us about that? Um, so a lot of the, the on the website, um, you can navigate through it, and we'll actually show you generic exercises that you can do and definitely videos on home safety and assistive device use. Um, a lot of times a doctor will actually refer that to you before you even come to see me. So you'll already have that tool in your tool bag to use, utilize. Um, and if you don't feel comfortable going on the Internet and you just want to give us a call, you're more than welcome to do that as well. Mm-hmm. And then when do you begin rehab- rehabilitation after surgery? Right in the hospital, I would think, yes? Oh, yes. So this would actually be a perfect time for me to walk everyone through what, as physical therapists, we do with patients after surgery. Um, and it's usually very much to the patient's tolerance. It's nothing crazy. Um, I know a lot of people, when we walk in the room, they go, oh, here we go. Uh-huh. I know who you are. And then they're pleasantly surprised with how tolerable what we actually do with them really is. Um, their nurse now has already educated them on their bed exercises, which are a simple quad set, which means just tightening your thigh muscle as much as you can. We want to wake that muscle up. And a lot of surgeries, they kind of block that muscle and that sensation. So we have to wait till it wakes up. So the best way to do that is just trying to keep making that muscle and pushing your knee down into the bed. Um, another bed exercise that you're already doing is um, ankle pumps. So, you know, Multiple benefits there, increases circulation, prevents blood clots, but also helps you wake those muscles up. And then another one that they do is glute sets. So you're kind of just squeezing your butt muscles together in bed, which kind of feels funny, but it has so many benefits as well because your glutes are your main stabilizers beside your quad when you're standing up. So if those aren't awake, we kind of have trouble when we're walking, standing on one leg if they're not firing. So that's the first thing. You're already doing those by the time I get in there. When yeah. I come in, I just check to make sure that you're ready to get out of bed. Uh, there's several different tests. And then we sit at the edge of the bed. And if you can tolerate that, then we'll help you stand with your assistive device, and we'll fit it to you. So a lot of times people can't get into prehab, so they don't have an assistive device. So we provide one, fit it to them, and teach them how to use it, even just standing up from the bed. Um, we always encourage people to push from the bed because you can't grab the walker. It's not anchored to anything. So it can go kind of anywhere on you so that's our number one exercise and, and you can imagine there yeah sorry you can imagine somebody it's all new to them and you get exactly. up and you go to grab on and you fall back oh that's a scary well, image in my head yeah yeah well it's also terrifying because you just have work done on your hip or your knee and you yes. don't really know how it's going to feel when you stand up 
Oh, so we gosh. definitely, you know, we do everything we can to make them comfortable. We'll raise the bed up so that you're only standing from a semi-seated position. Um, you know, and once you tolerate that and you're standing, you're like, oh, my gosh. A lot of people say to me, this isn't the pain I had before surgery. That pain's gone. And it's it's really wonderful. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'm not going to fib. You're going to have some surgical pain. But, that you know, that's managed by nurses and doctors. But that, that, that pain that you had before surgery should be gone. So then we can kind of lower the bed and work mm-hmm. on sitting and standing that way. And then we mm-hmm. can go from there, marching in place and walking. It makes perfect sense. Now, I know it's not really your field, but one of the things you remind your patients of is that their preoperative weight is a big factor in the success of the surgery and recovery. And during the stay-at-home time, um, we have to remind people for lots of reasons, but especially going into surgery, trying to keep your weight stable. uh, And, you know, what would you tell your patients about that? So um, you're going to hear me say this several times, just stay as active as possible. Um, mm-hmm. I know you're in a lot of pain. That's why you're having surgery. But if there's things that you can do every day, get up and do them. You know, if you walk out into the backyard with your dog every day, go ahead and walk out back. Um, we just try to keep your same routine. Don't limit yourself because you're afraid you're going to damage the joint. Functional activities will not damage your joint. Um, gentle exercise will not damage the joint. Um, if you have a pool, it's warm out. So go ahead outside and swim. I had a patient tell me the other day he had no idea he could go in the pool preoperatively. Postoperatively mm-hmm. is a different story. You mm-hmm. know, so get in the pool and walk around. Um, anything you can tolerate. And I love your idea. We're all sitting at our computers much more than we were prior to the stay at home. And you said on a good, sturdy chair, just stand and sit 20 times. And really, you yep. should do that even if you're not facing surgery because we, we really mm-hmm. have to increase our circulation mm-hmm. and, uh, you yeah. know, use it or lose it. Well, Kristen, let's, let's take a little break and we'll be back absolutely. in just a moment with Kristen Callahan. Thank you. Your radio doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie is exclusively presented by Independence Blue Cross. Dr. Marianne will return, but first, a medical message from one of our partners. Welcome back with Kristen Callahan, physical therapist from Rothman Orthopedics. Kristen, tell us, when a person does have hip or knee surgery, how do you decide they're ready to go home directly and follow exercises there? And when do you just suggest that instead they should spend time, a few days at an inpatient facility uh, for more specialized uh, rehab? Oh, well, this is a great segue from a question you asked earlier about when exercises start. So, as physical therapists, what we look for after we give you those initial exercises in the hospital is how far can you really walk? Is it safe for you to get out of bed, get out of a chair, get on and off a toilet? Basic human things that we know, we need to know that you can do safely without too much pain or too much stress um, that we can safely send you home. So what we normally do is we make sure that you can kind of walk up and down the hallway at least once or twice. And then we take you back to that floating staircase I referenced earlier. And a lot of times when we do this, we like to have a family member, whoever is going to bring you home, come with us at that point so that they can learn how to properly guard you, Um, whether you're going to go home on crutches or a walker. Most of the time, it's almost always a walker. Um, You know, if you have no one has two handrails and only two stairs leading to their front door and lives in a one flat area, um, it's almost unheard of. So a lot of times we have to get creative with the home situation. 
Um, so we just practice, you know, if you have a railing on one side and then it switches to the other side, we'll practice it in real time exactly what you have to do. Sometimes people can get it the next morning and they're ready to go home by lunch. Other people need a little bit more time. Um, some people do really well with anesthesia or whatever medications they're on. Other people struggle a little, so it's really individualized. Um, there is no set time frame. You must, you know, do this in this amount of hours and this in this amount of hours. Um, we try to take everyone as an individual. Um, so what we often do is we'll, we'll uh, help you set up your walker-assisted device, train you on the stairs, make sure you can do it safely and independently, and then what we'll do is we'll come back to the room and make sure you can get in and out of bed without a bed rail and a flat bed because a lot of times you're in a hospital bed and you're grabbing the bed rail or the bed sits up for you or the bed's a lot higher. So we try to make it home situation realistic. And then we also make sure that you can get on and off a toilet. Um, sometimes we go into the bathroom and I'll ask where the vanity or the windowsill is and the patient's like, I don't have anything. You know, mm. So we have to make um, really sure that whatever we're doing, it's real-life situation. Um, if the patient is safe in all of this, we give our okay for them to go home. If their pain is under control and they're medically ready, then they usually can go home um, in one to two days. Uh, some people just struggle a little, or some people don't live with anyone. Um, they just can't get the hang of the steps. Uh, they have other things going on. So we kind of have to give them a little bit extra help. And at that point, after maybe two or three days, we would say, listen, it's not safe for you to go home. We don't want you to fall. Maybe you should go just get a little bit more help. Right. Um, so well, that's really our, our decision yeah. tree there. Yeah, that makes sense. And, and you explained it so beautifully. And, of course, you want to make sure they understand their medications, how to use them, what is an acceptable Absolutely. level of pain. Yeah. So they can always yeah. reach you again. And I know you also give them a printout and the patient review, review the printout with yeah. them. And if they have to, they can call you. So, Kristen, thank you so much. If somebody wanted to reach you for an appointment or come to Rothman, what number would they call and what website? So we have a main scheduling area um, that can be reached at 1-800-321-9999. Beautiful. Or you can go online and look it up at rothmanortho.com, and you well, can see all the wonderful services we offer there. Well, I learned a lot from listening to you today. Hopefully I won't need a hip or knee in the near future, but I'd, I'd know where to come. So thank you so much. You're welcome. Stay well. I hope I made it a little less scary for everyone. Oh, I think you did. And, and so much good. of it was good, good common sense and fitting good. the, the uh, therapy to the patient. So thank you again. You're welcome. I call this segment an officer and a gentleman. For over seven decades, the USO, United Services Organization, has provided comfort and support and boosted the morale of our nation's military as they defend our country and its freedom. Remember watching all those Bob Hope Christmas specials? The faces of those young soldiers were filled with joy because the legendary comedian brought laughter to remote outposts and dangerous war zones, connecting them with home. Whether it was World War II, Korea, Vietnam, or the Gulf War, Bob brought hope. The USO still serves our military men, women, and families on seven continents, in cities across the U.S., and in places too dangerous for anyone but combat troops to occupy. There's a beautiful USO center at our own Philadelphia airport. One of the faithful volunteers is John Thomas, who knows firsthand about the sacrifices of our men and women in uniform. You see, John Thomas is one of them. After graduating from West Point, John served in Korea, 
He served in Vietnam at the height of the war. And on far too many occasions, he was part of the burial team that laid fallen brothers and sisters to rest in Arlington Cemetery. He knows every step of the 13-fold flag ceremony that ends precisely on the last note of America the Beautiful. Captain John Thomas continued to serve his country with a 25-year career in the FBI. Then when most people retired to a more relaxed routine, John enlisted for another tour of duty. For the past nine years, every Tuesday and Wednesday, John has been the official breakfast chef at the U.S. Center in the Philadelphia International Airport. Now, just on Tuesdays, he still leaves home at 4.15 a.m. and reports for duty before 6. Guess that's when he sings, you're in the Army now. His signature? That snowflake breakfast sandwich. Each one's a little different, and it melts in your mouth. He makes up to six dozen in one morning. The USO in Philly has a dining area, TV lounge, showers, even a play area. Sometimes a volunteer grandmother comforts children while their mom takes a rest. Over 200 dedicated volunteers from as far as Lehigh Valley. They provide hospitality to thousands each year, including families who stop at our airport on the way to Dover Air Force Base for the dignified transfer of their loved one lost in the line of duty. John says families go through almost as much as the serviceman or woman, the constant relocating, adapting to new situations. Imagine a student having to move away halfway through high school. And he adds, I volunteer because I appreciate the men I worked and served with in the military. And the present generation is very patriotic. Every time I have a conversation with them, I'm reminded how blessed we are to have such great sailors, airmen, and soldiers. None of us would be volunteers if we didn't have such good customers. Today, we salute Old Glory on Flag Day and say happy 245th birthday to the Army. What better way to commemorate both occasions than to thank U.S. Army Captain John Thomas for his service to our country and his fellow servicemen and women. Your real champion is Captain John Thomas, an officer and a gentleman. Thank you for joining us today. Tune in next Sunday to hear about a vaccine for colon cancer and the notable rise of colon cancer in young people. Send us stories of your champions. Send pictures of the flag in front of your home to support COVID patients and their families or questions I can answer on the next show. Send them to info at yourradiodoctor.com. And remember, your health is your wealth. Thanks for listening to Your Radio Doctor, Dr. Marianne Ritchie, a Jacob Media production. If you're interested in learning more about the power of the radio hour, contact Joe Krause at 267-261-3428. This program is a paid commercial announcement and in no way represents the views of WPHT or its management. Today's program has been pre-recorded.